0: When you do that, does that mean that you're now bedazzled?
1: (laughs) I'm a rhinestone cowboy.
0: (laughs) At the Diamond Cabaret?
1: At the Diamond Cabaret.
0: (laughs) Oh, Lord. I'm just going to just let that hang because I want the listeners to go figure this out on their own.
1: NSFW, NSFW.
0: Hey, Prog fans, welcome to yet another episode of the Ultimate Prog Podcast Project. Another
2: one! They keep coming!
0: (laughs) (laughs) My name is Tony, and as always, I'm joined by... Lee. And Craig. We are three friends and Prog aficionados here to talk about the history and the craft of progressive music, while sprinkling in our always unvarnished opinions of the music and personalities that make this genre so great. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at UP3Show or on Mastodon at UP3Show on Mastodon.social. You can find us on our homepage at UP3Show.com where we will put up some extra content from now on again. And if you'd like to get in contact with us via email, the old-fashioned Pony Expressway, you can do so at UP3Show at gmail.com. If you can't get enough of the show, don't forget, please hit the subscribe button on our podcast page at UP3Show.Podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts, this will make sure that you don't miss our next episode, and will help other Prog fans find the show. Now that we've stumbled out of the gate, (laughs) what have you guys been up to since we talked last? And I'll start with you tonight, Craig.
1: Hey, last night I played at Dazzle again. Cool. So Dazzle, if you're not in the Denver area, is the Denver Top Jazz Club. I did this one-month adult ensemble. Mm Mm-hmm. And we have four rehearsals, and then we perform them. Very cool. And just working. My job got hard to do. It's actually taking brain cycles, and it's annoying.
0: Well, I'm sorry to hear that. That's okay. How about you, Lee? What have you been up to since last time?
2: Yeah, I wish mine was that glamorous, but it's not. Just super busy at work. And then on top of that, a whole bunch of family stuff came crashing in. So Mm -hmm. you got to go take care of some extended family business in the next few weeks and uh, dealing with that. Did get to sit down and practice a little pentatonic soloing in the studio again. Sweet. Yeah, not nearly as much as I would like to. Nice. And putting some research into the upcoming episode, which I can't really talk about because I don't know when it's going to happen, but soon, hopefully this season. That's a heck of a teaser. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's an interview. I'll put it that way.
0: There you go. We've actually got a couple of interviews that we're working on that we hope to get through this season.
1: Yeah. We won't say who it is, but now that they've discovered classified documents at his house, he had to push it out.
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> well, you know what? I've probably got classified documents in my house at this point. <laughs> What's your up to, Tony? So I've not been up to a whole lot other than the typical thing we talk about. We're old guys that do a lot of work, but mm. in Southern California at Christmas time, I had had this idea for a short story I want to write, and I did some brainstorming with friend of the show Jeff Vicente. Shout out to Jeff. Hi, and I'm starting to take some of those ideas and actually write them down and do stuff with it. Very cool. Other than that, preparing to run a new D and D game. We would like to go around and discuss what we've been listening to, and I'm very excited to hear about this from you guys this month. This time, I'll start with you, Lee. What have you been listening to since last time?
2: New Riverside Identity, and it is good. It is a real broad mix of styles this time. There's a little bit of everything on this album. But what I'm really liking is there is a whole lot of keyboard work. Mm. Michael Lepage is really showing up heavily on this album. So highly recommended New Riverside Identity.
0: That's really awesome. And how are you, Craig?
2: You know, it
1: wouldn't be the same if I didn't say I was listening to some jazz. Oh, can I give a shout out to a friend of mine?
0: No.
2: no. <laughs> <laughs> you should have learned not to ask by now.
0: I literally just gave a shout out to a friend of mine and then you asked permission. Go for it, dude.
1: I've been listening to a guy named Kenny Barron. He's a piano player, pretty old school jazz. He's from Philly. Mm-hmm. He's in his 70s. He's coming to town and a buddy of mine named Doug Gertner. Shout out to Doug because he listens to the podcast. He nice. loved the Yes shout episode, out to Doug. by the way.
2: Yeah, we'll shout out to anybody that listens.
0: All four of them. <laughs> yeah. <right. laughs>
1: anyway, so uh, what I want to say about Doug, who's a cool dude, he is a music nerd of spectacular proportions. He has a weekly radio show on KGNU. Oh, cool. And one of the reasons I'm listening to Kenny Barron is he interviewed Kenny earlier this week because Kenny Barron is coming to town next week and I was going to see him and I can't because I have to go on a work trip to San Jose. <sighs> what I want you to do is listen to Doug's show on KGNU every Thursday, 930 a.m. to noon mountain time. It's very eclectic. He does do the occasional prog song. He also does Americana, all kinds of stuff. And this dude is a music encyclopedia.
0: Awesome. There you go. What I was going to say for myself, I'm surprised you didn't latch on Rick Wakeman. One of them is definitely Rick Wakeman. So the new Rick Wakeman, a gallery of the imagination is out. Mm-hmm. I like it a lot, but I think I like modern Rick Wakeman more than you guys seem to. It does not sound like the red planet at all, but it does a similar thing to the red planet in that it's very evocative of a particular atmosphere. And so I think I'll just leave it at that. That's cool. And the other one that I was going to mention, there's now a single from Peter Gabriel. Yes, that's right. right. Panopticom, and there's now two mixes out of it. And I like this approach of where he's doing different mixes for the same track. Mm -hmm. He's been doing these little YouTube shorts where he will release the single and then give the background behind that mix. What was going on, what they're trying to evoke with the particular mix and stuff like that. It's really cool. Oh, Oh, very cool. cool. Lee, what do you got for us for news this month?
2: The big one has rocked the world of Prague, and music is the death of Jeff Beck. Yeah. We all three saw him, Mm -hmm. what, a year ago? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, not long ago. That's just hit me hard. Brain's new album, Radio Silence, will come out January 27th, and we're recording just slightly ahead of that date, so I have not listened yet. Riverside Identity is out now, and as I said before, I really like that. There is a new Periphery album. It will be their fifth called gent is not a genre (laughs) that's
0: cool that is such a great inside joke (laughs) i know
2: and that's coming march 10th transatlantic is due to release a new live album live at L'Olympia february 17th but what was more interesting is portnoy came out shortly after that and said there will be no more studio releases absolute universe is the end of transatlantic as we know it wow
0: That's both a good thing and a bad thing.
2: Yeah, I know. I was a little surprised. You know, but how many bands announce that they're
1: done and then come back?
2: Yeah, well, true. You know. ACT has announced the third EP of their four-part series is going to release March 3rd. Cool. The new EP will be called Falling. As Tony pointed out, new Peter Gabriel album teaser, Panopticon, is out now. Haken's new album, Fauna, is releasing March 3rd, and they released a new teaser track called Taurus. Which is a little more like standard prog metal kind of haken. Uh-huh.
3: Uh-huh.
2: New Redemption, I Am the Storm is coming out March 17th, and they released a teaser called Seven Minutes from Sunset, which I like a lot. Uh-huh. Outrun the Sunlight is releasing a new album in February called The Return of Inertia. Winery Dogs' third album is coming out in February. I do not have a title on that. New Jethro Toll, Roke Flute, Roke Flute.
0: Yeah, I looked at that because I wanted to bring that if you didn't. And I was like, I, <laughs> I know. I'm a German speaker and I don't know how to do like. <laughs> yeah,
2: two mutts in the same word really threw me. They have released a new single called Genunga Gap, a little heavier than the last one, which I thought was kind of folky. And then finally, Exploring Birdsong is going to release a new EP, Dancing in the Face of Danger, in March.
0: I am so excited by that.
2: Yeah, I've really been following this band since you recommended them in the Prog Metal episode. Very
0: moody band, but I love that band.
2: Yep. And then we're waiting on pattern-seeking Animals' fourth album. We know that's complete, but they're in post-production. That's it.
0: One I was going to throw out there, I talked about this in a Prog Not Prog episode, is Dark Sarah, Mm -hmm. and they have their new crowdfunded album coming out on the 27th of January, and uh, I'll be talking about it next month, because I'm super excited by this. Cool. And then, Craig, why don't you regale us with something that's unheard of?
1: What's unheard of? Here's what's unheard of. Me preparing... Ahead of time, more, more than an <laughs> hour before the episode. So I keep a spreadsheet of potential bands to do. And sometimes I listen and sometimes I don't. Oh, is
0: this like uh, Mitt Romney's Binders of Women? Oh,
1: God. It's, uh, no. It took you a while to think about it. <laughs> so this jazz show we did yesterday, one of the songs we did was Caravan. Mm-hmm. So I was looking through the list and I saw a band called The Flying Caravan. So I thought, oh, that'd be cool to do. And turns out there's two bands called Flying Caravan. It really kind of threw me. There's one based out of Portland that is definitely not Prague. And there's one based out of Spain that is very Prague. I never heard of them. And they have one album and they just recently got signed. So I did manage to pull a couple clips together. Let's give a listen to a song called Get Real. Little Feet. You uh, kind of get that vibe? Absolutely
2: get a Little Feet vibe in that. Very cool. Mm-hmm.
1: Their bio says that the guitar player got a lot of inspiration from Mark Knopfler. I wanted to play that track because it kind of has a little Mark Knopfler feel. That particular song goes on for about seven and a half minutes. Their songs are long. Yay. In the great prog sense. And they have many movements and they're all awesome. They are female fronted. And I am going to now play a song called Love's Labor. So you kind of get the flavor of the style of vocals that they do. I like that. Interesting. Yeah, I do too. They list their influences as kind of the usual suspects, but they definitely throw in like Transatlantic and Flower Kings.
0: Those vocals really remind me of Sarah Scutroni of the band Ancient Bards.
1: Interesting. So I have one more clip here. I actually like this last one a lot. It's very atmospheric, really cool instrumentation. They do use flutes and saxes from time to time. Mm.
2: That was nice. Yeah, I
1: really like that. Was that. Really I like that nice. solo. I think this band is cool as hell. Like I say, they have one album. It's called I Just Want to Break Even. <laughs> <laughs> they <Don't laughs> being a little <laughs> honest there, aren't they? A little meta. They're on Bandcamp, on YouTube. All the socials are covered. And like I say, if you do search for them, look for The Flying Caravan Band not Flying Caravan, because you'll end up with a crunchy Portland band. (laughs) So Flying Caravan, awesome band, yet another unheard of pleasant surprise. I'm I'm really excited to listen to more.
0: Very cool. Awesome. Thank you very much for bringing that to us, Craig. Yep. So tonight it's my turn. Let's go talk about Tool. Tonight, we're going to talk about a band that in prog circles in particular, but I think in general this is true as well, is very, very polarizing. The band we're going to talk about tonight is Tool. There are people that think that they are very oversaturated, very overvalued, and don't really live up to the hype. And then there's this other side of it that thinks that everything that Tool does is golden there's even this kind of fraternity house, dude bro kind of culture that exists around this band yeah. because they do include references to some esoteric content in their lyrics. Mm-hmm. Kind of like people that got the references in The Matrix thought that they were some kind of erudite <laughs> intellectual.
1: <Neo! laughs> exactly. What did you mean when you said saturated, though?
0: That they get more attention than they deserve. Okay, I do think that regardless of the rest of the content, there is a pretty cool arc with the development of this band. Mm-hmm. And I am also going to try and focus on the band, because there's also this mythos that exists around Maynard Keenan, the lead singer. Yeah. And while his vocals are important to this band, I do want to try and focus more on the band as a whole and how they develop collectively. There are some necessary offshoots to Maynard's individual stuff, but I want to stay focused on Tool. So, Craig, how familiar are you with Tool?
1: I'm very unfamiliar with Tool. I have a couple of CDs that I've listened to once or twice. Mm -hmm. Didn't really do a whole lot for me. I know that either they opened for King Crimson or King Crimson opened for them Mm -hmm. almost 10 years ago, and that was kind of a big deal. Somebody turned me on to a Maynard solo thing.
0: Probably Pussifer.
1: It was Pussifer, yeah. And I watched it in its entirety, but it was a little out there for me, to be real honest.
0: Pussifer is an out there thing, on purpose. Okay. And Lee, how about you?
2: I got into Tool at Anima. Okay. So Anima, Lateralis, and 10,000 Days, I'm pretty familiar with. They're in my rotation.
0: Have you listened to the most recent album? I have
2: not listened to Fear Inoculums.
0: Okay. Okay. So to tell the story of this band, we kind of have to go back to when they were coming up and how they got signed and how they came together as a band. Mm -hmm. We're talking circa 1980s, which if you go back in time to when we talked about our prog metal episode, we have albums like Operation Mindcrime happening. And that's in the era of Conception really bringing prog metal to the fore Some people argue Metallica. They're happening in this period where prog metal is becoming a thing. Mm. So they had all come to Los Angeles for various and sundry reasons, like job-related reasons. For example, Adam Jones, who's the guitar player, actually came to Los Angeles to work in cinema, famously worked on Jurassic Park and the Terminator series and stuff like that. Maynard, he was actually working a different job, as I recall, and ended up just doing art and music on the side. So the band comes together and coalesces in Los Angeles circa 1989, 1990, and they start playing shows around the area. And in that period of time, that's when thrash metal was really happening in Los Angeles. That was a key part of the scene. So when we get to Tool touring around and getting signed by Zoo Records, they have said in various interviews that... Their goal was to play as hard and heavy and be exactly in the middle of that scene so that they could get attention from labels. And so we hear that show up on their first EP. So they actually released an EP before they released their first LP. And I'm going to play a track for you real quick called Part of Me which is off of that EP and I think you'll very much get that thrash metal feel out of this. Now, that's a very thrash-sounding track, but there are still some of the key components that make up the Tool sound present there. You have this quintessential Maynard scream, which he does a lot. I would say that it's become more refined and mature over time. It's used more strategically. While mixed differently, there is a very bass-driven sound to early Tool. And that's still true today, very bass centric and kind of drum centric as well. But we'll talk about that when I get to some of my comments about mixing and producing. So those things are very, very common in Tool. Adam, who is their guitar player, he's there always in the mix, but kind of in a more reserved role. So with that said, it's important to talk about who were the players in these early days of Tool. We have the aforementioned Maynard James Keenan on vocals. Adam Jones, who plays guitar, Danny Carey, who plays drums, and then for the first two releases, so the EP Opiate and then their first LP Undertow, Paul Damore, who eventually left the band partway through the recording of Anima. (laughs) Creative differences, but from all accounts that I can find, still very, very friendly with the band. He just wanted to go off in a more experimental direction and Also on the EP, Opiate, there's the beginnings of something that's a common thread through the Tool experience in general. Tool is very well known for, one, being a bit obtuse and opaque. (laughs) They make references to things, and if you get it, you get it, and if you don't, you don't. They're moving on. They are known for poking fun at their own fans and saying, you guys are kind of dumbasses, They don't really like the fandom side of things, they just wanna make art. So for a very, very long time, they didn't publish lyrics. They were asked at one time, why don't you publish lyrics? And they said, because I want you to take the experience of what you're listening to and figure out what it means to you as a whole. I don't want you to be poisoned by reading the words and then trying to figure it out. Just take the experience of the art. And they're also immensely private which I think was a key part of their popularity in the 90s, because especially during the grunge era of rock, there was the rock star thing, right? Of like, we're going to do all these interviews and you're going to know everything about these artists. Tool wasn't like that. You knew basically nothing about them. And then the last component that's kind of a staple of the Tool experience are these inside jokes that they do. So for example, on opiate and undertow, there are these audio jokes, the lack of a better word, the lead track on opiate and then the lead track on undertow don't just start. There's actually silence at the beginning of these tracks. And they did this to kind of get people to go, oh, is my CD player working correctly? Boop, boop, boop. <laughs> it goes like 15, 20 seconds. And then the track starts. On Opiate, there's actually a hidden track called The Gaping Lotus Experiment. It starts six minutes after the end of the final track. There's a lot of those kinds of things. If you had the CD version of Undertow, the final track is on track 69. And then at the end of that, there's like a six-minute gap. And then there's this spoken word poem. (laughs) There's lots of these little things that happen. So Tools is touring. They get signed. They release Opiate. And there's some buzz around them, but not a lot. And then Undertow, their first LP, comes out, and they immediately get a lot of attention because their music videos are controversial. So remember I said that Adam Jones was working in cinema. He's always been the lead of their art direction. And the two music videos that he produced for that album were both done in stop animation. I believe the first single was Sober. And because they wouldn't publish lyrics, people could pick up on some of the words. They seemed kind of controversial because there was an F-bomb in it, and they seemed kind of anti-religious. But at the same time, the music video was very disturbing with this very dark stop animation with tubes of human or other forms of flesh flowing through it. Just lots of dark imagery. And then the second single came out and was immediately controversial because of its title called Prison Sex. And this title is one of the things that we've been able to unpack through years of interviews and now that the lyrics are public that song is about child abuse mm. and the prison is the fact that you're a minor child and can't leave your family. And so I will play for you the song Sober which I said was the first single and then I want to counterpoint that with what I think is some more progressive direction that they were going in.
3: I'm just an-
0: got a Riverside vibe. Oh, yeah, I could see that. One of the things about picking samples for Tool is that a lot of times their music is very slow and brooding. So it's hard to get like, here's a 30-second sample that represents everything. In general, the singles that came off of Undertow, Sober and Prison Sex, to a certain extent, the track Intolerance as well, kind of reflect the feel that you got off of Opiate. It's still a bit of that thrash metal-y sound, but it's slightly more refined. My argument to people who say, hey, I picked it up in Anima and it's been this progressive juggernaut and they made this big shift. I've told this story before on the show. When Anima came out, my friend Greg Conley got a copy of Anima before the rest of us and I asked him what he thought of it. He was like, it's more musical. And what he meant was it's more structured. It's got more complexity to it. It's more mature. (laughs) people that consider themselves Tool fans at the time were like, I don't like this direction they're going. And I remember even in 96, when that came out, going, well, this isn't so different. And I could point my friends back to some of the tracks on Undertow that really point in that direction. So the first song I want you to listen to off of Undertow that kind of goes in that direction is called Swamp Song. For me, this is a very atmospheric song. A lot of these tracks that I think are more progressive off of Undertow are longer as well. Uh I think this one clocks in at six and a half minutes. The other one I want you to listen to called Flood is almost 10. And they're a lot more of that brooding Tool sound. They're very spacey. They don't have necessarily the musical complexity that we will start to pick up on in Tool. But they're pointing in that direction and really when I talk about Tool, there's a lot of really awesome Tool songs, but always, Flood has been my favorite. that you like that yeah I like all this stuff what's really really cool about flood in particular and why it's always appealed to me is let's say it's like nine and a half or ten minutes long for about seven of those minutes it's all instrumental and the band is playing with an increasing volume as the track progresses and they also go up the scale and they bring in more of the bass and what it ends up giving if you listen to the whole track is the feeling of rising waters. And then literally in the last two and a half minutes of the track, vocals come in and it quickly goes into those lyrics of everything I thought and everything I believed as a crumbling image with the water crashing over me. And then at the very crescendo of the track, it's a very frenetic, now there's a big flash flood happening. Mm -hmm. It's this big feeling that's happening on their very first album album. I'm kind of beating a dead horse, but for those people that are like, there was a dividing line between Tool being uh, a prog band and not being a prog band. I don't think that there's such a dividing line. In a similar way, we've talked about with someone like Peter Gabriel, where I think even as pop stuff is prog and there's not as much of a dividing line, Mm -hmm. I think the same thing with Tool. As I mentioned, even in the early days, Tool was no stranger to controversy. That extended beyond just their music and videos to the album liner art itself. The cover art of the album is this red shadowy art of what might be a human rib cage. It's not specifically a human rib cage. It's just kind of evocative of a human rib cage. And then inside the liner, if you were to take out the jewel case tray, there's actually a hidden picture that you don't normally see there. And it's of a naked man and a woman, and the woman is very obese, and the man is very, very thin and gaunt, and she's wrapping him in this embrace, but they're both naked. And then on the rear cover art is this cow that's reaching around and licking its own rear end. And so this art caused a great uproar with Walmart and Walmart refused to stock the album because of the artwork. And famously, if you went and you found the album on the shelves in a Walmart in those days, there wasn't any of the other cover art. It was a simple black cover on the back that just had the track listing, and then the front cover was just a giant barcode. Hmm. And when you opened up a Walmart edition of the album, there was this note that said, It came to our attention recently that many stores across our fine and open-minded nation would not stock undertow because of our explicit artwork. Although we loathe being censored, we still want your money, and that's crossed out. (laughs) We still want you to hear our music, so we took it out. However, it's still available for you at no extra cost, and then there's some instructions on how to send away via the mail to get the original cover art sent to you. And I think all these things kind of in that era are building this mythos of Tool pushes the edge, Tool is evocative. So that's not really new,
1: though. I mean, look at the Beatles' White Album. That's kind of a real similar Fair. story. Right.
2: Roxy Music was getting in trouble with their album covers in like 74, 75. And then
1: sometimes it goes backwards. Like Blind Faith had a topless woman who was probably underage, and that was on the shelves for years. And yeah. only recently they edit that out.
0: Yeah. And I'm not saying the tool is the first. I'm just saying that they were one of those bands that just kind of pushed the edge. Yep. Sure. And they kind of wallowed in it. Mm. They were like, yeah, this is going to build up mythos for us.
1: So is that like a marketing decision you think they made?
0: No, I really don't think so. Because even on opiate, they had this imagery of this demonic looking priest. It's got three necks, all wearing a Catholic collar, but the face is very demonic and unsettling. So pushing the edge with this kind of art isn't really new. This was part and parcel of what they did and just how they expressed their art. In terms of the sound, these first two albums are produced by Sylvia Massey. Sylvia, if you're out there and you ever hear this, I think you did an amazing job with the first two tool albums. No fault to you there. But I do think that the way that those albums were done, they downplayed some of the core tool sound, like that bass lead sound. And I definitely think it's how they mixed the bass, but then also how they mixed the drums. One of the things I picked up on is that on undertow and opiate, there was much more miking on the snare and the cymbals, or at least they're more forward in the mix, And when we shift here in a moment to talking about Anima and the subsequent albums, they're still there, but they're subdued. Also, Adam's guitar is pushed more to the middle of the mix. Occasionally he'll solo, but not a lot. And so this is going to happen circa 1996 when Anima comes out. And I think most people know the big Tool singles. I'm specifically trying to choose other representative tracks, but one that I think you have to listen to from Anima is 46 and 2. Yes. Like that, Winley.
2: Oh, yeah. My favorite tool song. You know, you talked earlier about Flood and how it builds and builds. Mm-hmm. To me, that's what 46 and 2 does as well.
0: Yeah, I can definitely see that.
2: And I've always loved the meta meeting behind the title too.
0: Yes. I'm going to touch on that here in a moment. Okay, go for it. So 46 and 2 is probably the first place where they really start referencing other ideas of human existence. The 46 in this title references the 46 chromosomes in human DNA. Mm -hmm. But then the plus two is referencing the next part of human evolution. What would that look like? And then they make a lot of references to the shadow in the lyrics of that track. And the shadow they're talking about comes from Jungian psychology and the shadow self. So this is the first album where we start seeing that aspect of Tool come out. They're going to talk about psychology. Also very present on this album are more of these inside jokes. All in all, on Anima, there's a big master dose of it. And this is something they've done consistently since then. Of I would call them interludes. They're like these little tracks between tracks, but they also carry their own meaning. So there's this little track on Anima called Useful Idiot, which is scratching from like a record player. Mm-hmm. Now, when they pressed this as an LP, it was the last track on the A-side, so it was there to trick people into thinking that their record had actually finished the A-side. Right. But the term useful idiot also comes from propaganda, and it refers to someone who is a tool in like a despotic state to prop up the leadership, but really has no value of their own. It's also a reference to how Tool starts to poke fun at their own fan base and refer to their fans as useful idiots at the same time. Hmm. There's another track called D.I.R. Er von Satten, which is a very harshly spoken German language track, very reminiscent of Hitler's speech from the mid-30s, but in actuality is a recipe for some wedding cookies. But inside of that, they've got these references to ritual magic There's another interlude called Message to Harry Monbach, which is a voicemail recording that sounds very beautiful. It's in English, but with a very thick Italian accent, and kind of how a lot of people romanticize Italians. They think it's very beautiful sounding, but if you actually listen to the message, the person hates the person that they're leaving the message for, wishes that they would die and and get cancer. What they're trying to do is juxtapose, what do you think is beautiful? What do you think is dark? Also, they pay tribute to the late comedian Bill Hicks they have a drawing of him and refer to him as another dead hero. Mm -hmm. In the track Third Eye, they actually use snippets of his comedy. There's references to Arizona Bay, a tongue-in-cheek reference to how they think Southern California, L.A. in particular, is just a cesspool, and it needs to wash away in an earthquake and become Arizona Bay. So Tool is starting to push these boundaries on this album of what's out there. And I remember it was probably in the Lateralist tour, where I went to see them live in Biloxi and Maynard says something to the effect of the audience of, we're all here, we're all having this experience, so join me in trying to summon like a good experience tonight. And he starts chanting the Timothy Leary thing of, think for yourself, question authority. And the thing is, if you've got an entire stadium of people saying "think for yourself, question authority," no one's thinking for themselves or questioning authority. <laughs> yeah, it's
2: the old Money Python. Okay, just, right. It's from Money Python.
0: Y- yes, You're exactly. All different.
2: Yes, <laughs> yes we're yes, all we different.
0: <laughs> exactly. So forty six and two is probably the most famous track from that album. Yep. The artwork for this album is really cool. It's got this lenticular animation. They might have been the first. I don't know if they were the first to use lenticular art which basically means they have art that's printed in a special way so it looks 3D, and then there's a special plastic in the jewel case that when you move it, it animates. That's the one I have. And I remember this very vividly when this album came out, and it was on MTV's 120 Minutes. The first single is called Stink Fist. And on the surface, this track is about sexual fisting. And it makes these references to going finger deep and then elbow deep and then shoulder deep and all of these things,
2: It's a zap, um.
0: but yeah, kind of, <laughs> ding,
2: ding, 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 ding.
0: but when the lyrics are dissected further, it's about intimacy and being vulnerable with someone that you care about. The title was so controversial that MTV refused to use it on the air. You know how like MTV and VH1 would put like when they play a music video, they put all the critical information like track name, artist, label, all of that in the lower left. They would only refer to it as track number one. Hmm. They would not put the actual track title on TV. So another song I would like for you to listen to from this particular album is the track Push It, which I think really is a good example of where the tool sound is going. So this is another one of those tracks that's very airy. It's about an eight minute track. It builds very slowly, still has a bit of that metal sound in it. But I think as we move along, you'll see this tool sound is really evolving more and more. So that album comes out in 96 between the first LP and the second LP. It was about three years in 2000. So four years later, they release a special box set, not really any new content on it. There's some covers of No Quarter by Led Zeppelin and You Lied by Justin Chancellor's original band, Peach. Anima, it was about half recorded and written when Paul DeMore leaves the band and Justin Chancellor comes in and becomes the new permanent bassist, and who's been there forever since. He met the band because when they were touring in Europe, his band, Peach, was the supporting act for Tool in Europe. The next album that comes out is going to be in 2001. And before I talk about that, there was a lawsuit that happens with their original label, Zoo. That happened in 1996, right around the release of Anima. The band's original label was Zoo Records. It was folded into a bigger label called Volcano. But there was some issue where Zoo failed to exercise their rights to renew Tool's contract. So Tool went out and they started looking for a new label to sign to. This caused Volcano because they now own Zoo, to sue Tool for breach of contract, and then Tool countersued. Ultimately, this was resolved in a new contract, but this is what caused there to be this big five-year gap between LPs. Hmm. That was caused by this lawsuit, but this becomes a thing. I saw someone in one comment say, you know, Tool's encoding the Fibonacci sequence in how long it takes between record releases. (laughs) The first ones were like one year and then three years and then five years. And then it was over a decade between the next albums. It gets longer and longer between different albums. So one of the other key things that happens on Anima is a switch in producer. So Sylvia Massey did the first two. When they release Anima, they switch to David Bottrell. And one of the things, especially on Anima, is David Bottrell has a very known sound. I'm going to call it a very grungy, dirty sound. It's very raw. As we talked about in the King Crimson episode, at about this same time, he also produced Thrak for King Crimson. Hmm. I know that Robert Fripp is known for being very exacting and controlling about the sound of King Crimson albums, but I hear a lot of David Bottrell in Thrak. And it's because of hearing the other albums that he produced about that same time. So the next full-length album that's going to come out is an album called Lateralus. And it's at this point where I think as mainstream as Tool's going to go, that happens with Lateralus. And it kind of happens very, very quickly. Another thing to know about Tool is the zeitgeist around them at a period of time is very important for understanding the sound that they're producing. Again, undertow and opiate very early 90s, very thrash metal sounding, very early prog metal sounding. Anima is a product of its day in the mid 90s with more settled prog metal sound. And then Latteralus is going to come out in 2001. This album is very wrapped up in a lot of those alternative worldview, alternative medicine things. It's very esoteric. Mm. So the first track I would like to listen to you from that is the lead single, Schism. I can't overstate how much airplay that track got in the alternative rock circles in 2001. (laughs) Again, like I said, the zeitgeist of Tool is very important. At this point, it had been five years since Tool had released an album. There was a big hunger for Tool to release an album. Still in these days, they kind of sort of had a website, but there wasn't a lot of content on it. So the band is still very secretive. It's hard to get information about them. At one point, they kind of leaked, hey, we are going to produce a new album, but this is in the era of Napster. And so I don't really know if they orchestrated a quote unquote leak, but they said, hey, this is the track listing, none of which in the end actually ended up being the actual track titles.
2: Oh yeah, I remember
0: that. But then suddenly out of nowhere, Napster was flooded with those track titles. It was like a big prank that was played on the Napster using community at the time. The tracks on Lateralus are very esoteric. The first track is called The Grudge, and it's literally a track about what is the emotional weight of holding on to a grudge and not working through things. I'm going to let you listen to another track here in a moment called The Patient, which is about how do you get through a difficult situation, but there's also this double entendre with if someone is ill and it's really bad, do you really want them to die or live? They have the infamous track Parabola and Parable. Together, they're probably 15 minutes. The title track, Lateralus, which is famous for its encoding of the Fibonacci sequence. And then at the very end, they have another one of those Easter egg tracks called De Oeyad," which is voice of God, but it's written in this esoteric language that's considered the language of the angels. And what it is is a sample from the Art Bell coast to coast. <laughs> it's, like that's this funny. guy who's like frantic on a conspiracy theory thing. This album is the one that I think really cements tool is they're these really out there thinkers. They reference mathematics and their time signatures. And this is where that kind of pseudo intellectualism starts to set in around this band. In all of the interviews that I can find and read about them, they're just making their art, right? They're talking about stuff that's important to them. And so before we go any further, I want you to listen to The Patient. This is one of those albums that I really can't listen to a single. Yeah. If I'm going to listen to anything off of this album, I need to sit down and listen to the whole album end to end. And Leah, I'm interested in if your experience with this album is the same.
2: No, I agree. And it's a very dense album.
0: It is so dense.
2: I forget how many tracks there are, 16
0: or... 13.
2: I don't ever think I've just pulled it out to listen to one track. Maybe just Lateralis. It's a flow. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And everything is architected so it goes together. From an art direction perspective, they're pushing boundaries with the art again. This is their first collaboration with Alex Gray from the Temple of Sacred Mirrors. There's a name for these types of diagrams in medical literature where you have a figure of a human being. And you put different layers on top of it, and they'll show, like, the circulatory system or the skeletal system or the muscular system. Yeah, I remember this. But Alex's artwork also shows the energy system or the spiritual system, and so you see the energy flow of a human being, this very spiritual aspect of that same diagram. Right. So there's this juxtaposition, which, again, because of that artwork and the collaboration with Alex Gray, that leads, again, to reinforce That pseudo intellectual, like, oh, see, they're doing all this sacred art stuff kind of thing. And it was about this time where Tool was really getting into sacred geometry. And, you know, if anyone from Tool ever listens to this, I'm not poking fun or naysaying any of that. I'm just talking about this is kind of the energy that was going on in the community around these albums. It was about this time when Tool really got a proper website put together. And for the first time, they started publishing lyrics. So that would have been right around 2000 when Salival came out. And one of the things that they also did is there was a DVD version of Salival that had music videos on it. For the first time, they released music videos from the opiate era. This band had been gathering its following kind of against all odds, I would say, because that mystique of them, I think, is really what drove it. The follow-up to Lateralist, comes in 2006. It's the album 10,000 Days. 10,000 Days is roughly 27 years. In all of these hiatuses where Tool isn't doing content, Maynard Keenan has been going off and doing other projects. The first other project that he did was a band called A Perfect Circle with Billy Howardell, who was a guitar tech for Tool for a while. And then Tool comes back and releases 10,000 Days. A Perfect Circle had this track called Judith, which was about Maynard's mother, and she had some kind of brain hemorrhage that left her paralyzed. This was very formative because it happened early in Maynard's life. There were some issues with him getting shuffled around between his dad's house, his mom's house, because they were divorced, and she was very, very devoutly religious, and in the track Judith, he's taking issue with her religious fervor. And in those lyrics, he's saying, how do you have faith in the exact God that did this to you? By the time 10,000 Days comes out, which 10,000 Days is roughly 27 years, which is how long she lived in this paralyzed condition before she passed, (laughs) Maynard then writes this set of two tracks called Wings for Marie, part one and part two, which are his eulogy, for lack of a better word, expressing his love for his mother. When he was talking about this in the press, there's a couple of quotes here that I think are really important, because remember, Tool had been very, very secretive about their private lives, and this is the first time they're really starting to do press and be more in the open. He says, that's the time in your 28th, 29th year when you're presented the opportunity to transform from whatever your hangups were before to let the light of knowledge and experience lighten your load, so to speak, and let go of old patterns and embrace a new life you sink or swim at that point. And a lot of people don't make it. Hendrix didn't make it. Janus didn't make it. John Bonham, Kurt Cobain, they didn't make it past the Saturn return. Mm. So this 10,000 days, 27, 28 years is also an astronomical reference to the rotation of the planets and their astronomical positions. For me, starting to recognize those patterns, he continues, it was very important to start constructing songs that chronicled that process, hoping that my gift back would be to share that path and hope that I could help somebody else get past that spot. So he's working through all of these things. Later, what he found is that when they started touring and playing the Wings for Marie songs live, it was very, very emotionally draining for him. So he said, in looking back at putting those tracks on the album, I think probably the stupidest thing I could have done on 10,000 Days was put myself out there as much as I did with the tracks Wings for Marie Part 1 and Part 2. I'll never make that mistake again, it just took too much out of me, too much emotionally, mentally, physically, all those manifestations. Hmm. From 10,000 Days, the first one I would like for you to listen to is the lead track called Vicarious. That's a good track. I love that track.
2: Justin Chancellor's great on that.
0: The title, Vicarious, is literally talking about how we only feel something as consumers of media when we see something gory or sensational on TV or in the news. So this is Tool pushing right back on their audience, saying, hey, this is you guys. On the album Onoma, they had a track called Hooker with a Penis. Yeah. And that track, Maynard's lyrics are, hey, I met this guy who said that he was an OG Tool fan from Opiate Era. And he thinks that we're selling out. We don't have artistic integrity anymore. And he's like, if you think that I sold out, you need to know that I sold out a long time ago when I signed my record contract. And everything you know about me is part of a product that you've been sold, whether it's in a news article or on my album or in my music video. So by the way, send me more money. (laughs) Definitely reflecting back on the audience is a big part of this. I'll go with one other really interesting track from this album is the track Jombie. It's written in an iambic meter. And the Finnish word that refers to iambic meter is jombie. So that's actually the meter that the track is written in. But the band has also talked about that this is a reference to the genie Jombie on Pee Wee's Playhouse. (laughs) It's about getting wishes granted. So I'll let you listen to that track.
1: So that iambic pentameter
0: thing... Not pentameter, just normal iambic meter. Oh, what does it mean? Hard soft, but not necessarily pentameter, which is a particular length of a line. Got it. Okay. I have heard Tool in various different interviews refer to this particular album, 10,000 Days, as their blues album. It doesn't have your stereotypical blues sound, but it is mixed a little lower. It is about more somber content in general. A sequence that I think is really, really fun is the sequence of the tracks Lost Keys and then Rosetta Stoned. Rosetta Stoned is what would happen to one of those redneck hillbillies who gets abducted by aliens if they actually went to the hospital and had to tell their story. (laughs) The lyrics of the track are, they chose me and I didn't even graduate from fucking high school. (laughs) That's hilarious extraterrestrial abductions usually happen to the most unlikely of people. Like, why don't they ever abduct a doctor or someone like that? That's happening in 2006. And then we don't get another Tool album until 2019. Yeah, 13 years later.
1: So why does it take so long?
0: A number of reasons. So in the background, all along in here, Maynard has been doing other projects like Perfect Circle. I think in circa 2005 or 6, his other band, Pussifer, which whatever tool is, Pucifer is 180 degrees the other way. It's much more experimental, tends to have more an electronica feel to it. Also, at the same time, the band gets involved in another lawsuit. This lawsuit starts to happen around 2007. I think a friend of Adam's who did some artwork for them on an album and whether or not they credited it properly. And based on the crediting, did they pay the proper amount of royalties? Effectively, during this period, the band don't produce any albums. Once that's resolved, we hear in the media, Tool is writing, Tool is recording, and then Maynard would do these interviews. He's like, yeah, it's coming out real soon.
2: It becomes a long-running joke.
0: It becomes a joke almost, right? And one of the things that we learn through these interviews is how Tool as a band operate. The primary musicians are Danny Adam, and Justin. They write the tracks. And once they're locked in, then Maynard will come in and write vocal melodies over them. But he does that at the very last minute once the music is completely locked down. And he has said in a couple of interviews where he got really frustrated with them, they'd say, hey, this track is finished. Come write your vocals. He'd write vocals. And I think even in a couple of times he tracked vocals. And then they went, oh yeah, wait, we're going back to the drawing board. And that happened a couple of times. He got frustrated with it. And he basically walked away and said, you guys, don't call me until you're ready for me to really, really record for real. So then Tool finally gets ready with their music. And then in 2019, we finally get the album Fear Inoculum. They started touring a couple of warm-up tours, like small little sprint tours. And they started debuting two new tracks. One of the tracks is called *Numa*, and the other is called Invincible. And I'm going to let you listen to Invincible first. The track is about a warrior who maybe the wars are over. There aren't battles to fight anymore. So what's this person's role? Existential, like what do I do when my reason d'etre is gone? Mm-hmm. They actually won a Grammy for a different song on this album. But the other track that I really love is the track Numa. Mm-hmm. So an interesting thing about this particular track is that this is a continuing theme from something that stretches all the way back to Anima. The album Anima is written, it's the character where A and E are combined. So it gives the album two titles. If you use the E, the title of the album is enema, which I think is like a flushing out, obviously, right? But if you use the alternative spelling with the A, it references anema, which is a Latin concept referring to a spirit or life force, which is a big theme for them of like understanding your life force, your role in the world and the universe. Numa, this track, is actually a different word that means the same kind of life force. Tool has progressively become more mellow. They still get an aggressive musicality to them from time to time, but it's a far cry from that thrash metal anger of the original days on Opiate and Undertow. In a couple of interviews with Maynard, someone asked him about this. They were like, you know, your lyrics are becoming more spiritual, more centered, more mature. And his response was, I write songs about what I need at the point in time. And when I was younger and angry, I needed lyrics and songs to help me get through all of that. Hopefully I've gotten through that and I'm not that person anymore. And so now I'm at a different place. I think Lee, you said it best. Their albums are very dense. They don't lend themselves to single track listens. They are very much go get your headphones and sit down and go on a ride with them. I won't call any of their albums concept albums, but they are art pieces. It's everything from the music to the lyrics to how the album was packaged. All of it goes together with Tool. For all the folks that are familiar with Tool, I am sorry if like, there's a favorite factoid about Tool <laughs> that I have totally glossed over. There's just so much. There's just not a way to hit it all. To close out, there are some side projects that the various members of the band do. We've talked a fair amount about Maynard. He has his band Pussifer, which is the more experimental side of things. And then he has a perfect circle, which I think that he and Billy said that band is over now, right?
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I really like a perfect circle.
0: I mean, they are definitely a down the middle rock band.
2: A little bluesier.
0: I could see that. Yeah. Adam Jones is still very private. Um, His primary things that he does is he still works in cinema. Danny Carey is prolific. He does lots and lots of guest appearances with different bands. A big change in some of the Tool sound is Danny working with a Lok Duta and getting into Tabla. That changed a lot of the drum experience of Tool. He's also worked with an industrial band that I really enjoy called Pig Face. We did them on a Prague Not Prague one time. And he's got this stoner band called Pygmy Love Circus. <laughs> And then Justin Chancellor primarily works in Tool, but also does guest appearances on other people's albums. Yeah, that's a lot. There's a lot to say about Tool. This is an enigmatic band, a hard band to wrap your arms around. Thank you guys for humoring me on this. I feel like that was like a weird marathon of an episode.
1: It was like you were a Wikipedia
2: of tool, yes. Of tool.
0: I think I hit a third of my notes. Yeah. We usually talk about references and we think people should go check that out. If you're just getting into tool, I'm going to say start with lateralis and then don't go sequential from there. Go back to Anima, and then check out 10,000 days and in fear inoculum. If tool really starts to tickle your music bone, go back and check out opiate and undertow. But I would say start with lateralis and then go check out Anima. Very cool. As we exit the show, don't forget, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at UP3Show. We're now on Mastodon at UP3Show on the Mastodon.social server. Or you can contact us via email at UP3Show at gmail.com. We definitely want to hear from you. And as we've proven in the past, if you send us in something, then we'll do it on the show.
1: (laughs) You'll get something back.
0: If you're a band, send your band to us. So it can be in Craig's binder of women. I mean, his binder of bands. (laughs) I definitely want to hear him talk about you and unheard of.
1: And I love hearing from everybody.
0: If you want to give the show some support, it's super easy. You can support us non-financially by subscribing to the show on Podbean at up3show.podbean.com or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Also, please take a moment to write a review. This will help to make sure that the show pops up as a relevant search result whenever people search for stuff. And if you would like to support the show financially, we're at patreon.com slash up3show. If you throw a few coins our way, it helps keep the lights on. And we do put special content out there for our Patreon backers. Thank you guys yet again. And we'll talk to you next month. Bye. 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 Hey, folks. Tony here. If you made it this far congratulations you're getting everything you can out of this podcast episode as a reminder we are a podcast about commentary and opinion on Prague music we use samples of music to make our point and to teach others we make no claim of copyright to any of the music featured in our samples and strongly recommend that you support the artists we talk about by buying their albums and merchandise or seeing them live if you're an artist and you'd like for us to change how we've used your content on the show Please contact us directly so that we can work together.